Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Matthew 21. Uh, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to you, uh, you anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. And all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. So the disciples went, and they did as Jesus commanded them. (laughs) As you study, you're going through the chapter piece by piece, and you get to the end and what's going on at the end of this chapter. And I forgot this was here at the beginning until I just looked at my notes. There's the whole donkey scene at the beginning. Now when they drew near, uh, so context-wise, when we got to last week, we saw some of the last teachings of Jesus as they're going up to Jerusalem. Any direction you go, you're going up to Jerusalem. It's kind of a pinnacle at the top of that range in the middle of Israel. And as they're going up, Jesus knows and has told his disciples, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be sent to the authorities, they're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. And the disciples have kind of accepted that teaching at this point. All the way in this ministry, up until this chapter, Jesus has always suppressed the attention of the crowds. He's walked away from the multitudes to get alone with himself and his disciples. He's told people that he's healed to not talk about it and not make a big thing about it. He's kept everything fairly quiet so that for three years he can teach about the kingdom of God and and be uninterrupted by the Pharisees and disciples. Matthew records a couple of those interruptions. Jesus just turns them around into teachings. But he hasn't given the Pharisees anything they can sink their teeth into. I should say their fangs. Uh, But here, he's deliberate and he walks right into the Pharisees. Like he absolutely is setting this up. So what we see in the first few verses with this donkey situation is Jesus is actually attending to the details. This is a pretty special day to Jesus. He changes his whole mode of operation. And now he's like, I want you to get this donkey. I want you to bring the colt that was, that was with that donkey. And, and this is all kind of a setup. He just got done healing to blind man, uh, which is an Old Testament indicator of the Messiah. Anybody blind since birth, nobody's healed them. No Pharisee, no priest has ever healed the blind. So in healing the blind people, the word has gotten out quickly that Messiah is here. So any good Jewish person that went through their you know, 14-year-old Jewish training knows this about the blind. And in fact, the general assumption about the blind is that they're cursed, that God has especially cursed blind people. So when Jesus just heals them, he's lifting that curse as though he's God himself because only God can remove a curse that God puts there. So this is this idea. So when he says this to go, and even when he says if somebody tries to, because literally the disciples are walking up to somebody's house and taking a donkey, like, This could be thievery unless the owners are okay with it. And Jesus knows the owners are okay with it. In fact, in verse 3, he says, if somebody says something to you, just say, the Lord has need of them. Jesus assumes in saying that, that these people, whoever these people are, know exactly who the Lord is and what that is. The idea of the donkey, this is interesting. And again, with Matthew, it's like every paragraph is the fulfillment of a prophecy. So the cool part about this morning and even next Sunday we're going to be going through each of these prophecies so that we know what Matthew is referencing. Remember, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He's assuming they know the Old Testament. So when he drops in these one-line references, he's assuming they know the whole chapter, they, that they know the context of that. Um, so this idea that the Lord has need of it is a need to, there's a fulfilling of prophecy that Jesus is actually orchestrating. Last week, I talked about all the things that Jesus could not orchestrate. He can't He can't orchestrate as a human the fact that the Romans will crucify him. Like he doesn't, he has no way of changing the Romans' mind on that. As God, this has all been 
planned out and plotted out so that we recognize what just happened when the resurrection happens. So this is all set up by Matthew. In the time of Judges, when this passage was written in verse 5, tell this daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly sitting on a donkey, a colt full of a donkey. The wealthy people rode donkeys, but by the time of Solomon, donkeys became secondary to horses. So at the time this was written, it was an odd thing to say lowly and sitting on a donkey. A donkey is something that royals rode on. It was something that was for rich people. And as time passed, when Solomon comes around, the prophecies that are getting told around this is suddenly these donkeys become um, less regal. So it's an interesting prophecy in that sense, but it fulfills prophecy perfectly. Uh, the prophecy we're referring to in verse 5 is Zechariah 9.9. Get your notes ready today because there's going to be a lot of these references. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, and he is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the part that Jesus leaves out is interesting. He leaves out he is just and having salvation, and which is true, but he kind of skips over that part and just points out that the king is the focus and that there, there needs to be a donkey to ride on. That's a fo focus that's there. So lowly in that Jesus doesn't even own the donkey. He's borrowing it. Um, he comes in publicly at this point. Um, historically, through the Old Testament, when a general would ride up into the city, there'd be this massive celebration. So when a, and, and largely with the military connotation to it, Zechariah clearly identifies how the Messiah will present himself. Um, and in, if I just read the next verse, Zechariah 9.10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. I won't use a chariot and I won't use a horse. It's not going to be a military entry. The battle bow shall be cut off. I won't come in with weapons. And he shall speak to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It's interesting the part that Jesus quotes and what goes on either side of it is this idea that all of Jerusalem will be shouting. The king is coming as the party says. He's going to have salvation as the party leaves out. He's going to be riding on a donkey. He says that part and he leaves off this kind of part in Zechariah 9.10. I won't be coming in as a military leader. I'm going to come in and the whole city is going to celebrate. The problem with that prediction, if you're not seeing what Jesus is doing right now, is that it hasn't happened before that a non-military leader or a non-political leader has been celebrated as they've walked into the city. So it's kind of an interesting thing how Jesus fulfills this. He does something that's never been done before, yet it gets done. So after about three and a half years of defining the kingdom of God and telling his disciples over and over and over again, it's about heaven, it's not about earthly armies, here he comes riding in on a donkey with no weapon, no military victories behind him. He has not taken power as a king in the sense that the world looks at it. But in reality, after three and a half years, he has established himself as the king of a new kingdom, a new group of people following Jesus around. And he's got these disciples and there's these people that are there. I don't, because we're teaching in 1 Samuel 2, I don't miss the connection to the fact that David for a season had a group of people following him around as God built a new Israel through David, even under the reign of Saul, who he had lifted his hand from. Same thing's happening with Jesus and the Mosaic priesthood. Verse 2, the donkey tied in a colt. He has them bring two animals, but he only rides one of the animals. Part of the reason for that in Mark 11 too, uh, Mark points out the fact that the colt had never been ridden before. If you try to ride a four-legged animal that has never been ridden before, that generally doesn't go good. Like there's bucking broncos, there's bulls at rodeos that tend to kick their owners off. Animals that haven't been ridden don't like to be ridden for the first time. When he hops on this colt, Having the mother nearby can help keep the colt maybe settled down, or maybe the colt settled down as the two disciples bring him back. But when Jesus gets on this donkey and it doesn't kick him off, that's a full-on miracle. And, and, and it's one of those kind of subtle miracles that, wow, the colt didn't even kick him off. Like the, the donkey knows who its owner is, and you can't miss the connection to Balaam and, and the donkey speaking God's voice through a donkey. Like there's this idea that, that God's kind of mirroring and reflecting huge sections of the Old Testament. So Jesus rides an unridden donkey into town. The fine print supports Jesus' means. He's not coming in as a military leader or a civic leader. He's coming in as a spiritual leader, 
um, a king of a new heavenly kingdom, that it might be fulfilled. So Zechariah shows the means, and this part is, okay, so I'll say this before I get into Daniel. Let's be Bereans here. Let's study this, because this is way too cool to miss out on. Get your notes ready, because I'm going to go fast through some of this. I've heard this referenced a bunch, but as I studied for this week, I really wanted to nail down. I've heard like when Jesus came in on Palm Sunday, he came in on the day that was predicted in prophecy. So I just want to unpack that. Okay, how, did, how is that the day? And by the way, this is why the Pharisees get so upset, is Jesus is stealing the day, right? This is the day the Messiah is supposed to show up. Well, how did they know that? So they know how he's going to show up, lowly riding on a donkey, Zechariah, but with Daniel, they knew the day he would show up. This is why Jesus picks this day to make this happen. It's a, it's a big deal. So as Israel's getting carried away captive to Jerusalem, one of the prophets, Jeremiah, and I'm in Jeremiah 29, and I'll read a couple different verses here from Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah gives a prophecy. As the nation of Israel is hauled off to Babylon because of their sin, Jeremiah is the, the mourning prophet. He, he he tells them that they did something wrong as they're being punished. Like, like what a horrible job for a prophet. Um, but he says in Jeremiah 29, verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive to Babylon, whom I've caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and dwell in them and plant gardens and eat fruit. In other words, you're going to Babylon, make yourselves cozy. You're going to be there for a while. Like buy your houses, set it up, hang your pictures, uh, get your playlists read and set so you just relax because you're going to be in Babylon for a long time. And then in verse 10 of Jeremiah 29, it says, for, the Lord's, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I'll visit you and perform my good work towards you and cause you to return to this place. God never punishes without giving hope. Like there, there's a final judgment, but when he's dealing with Israel, he's always, he always says, if you do this, I'll do this. And if you do the other, I'll do the other. But there's always this hope and this chance. So get comfortable in Babylon. Don't stray from God. Get closer to God while you're in Babylon because I'm going to come back and redeem you. Verse 11, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not evil, to give you a future and a hope. He's talking to Israel here. Jeremiah 29, verse 12, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. After you've been in Babylon for 70 years, you're going to pray to me, or 70, we, 70, 70 years here. I'll listen to you because you're going to be drawing closer to me while you're under persecution there. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So you're being punished. You're losing your country, but get closer to me and learn from this discipline. Don't just stray and follow after Babylonian gods. So some people do stay faithful to God. Some people fall away. We got great stories. There's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's the Daniel and the lion's den, they go through persecution, but there's some of them that stay faithful to God and they lead and inspire the rest of, the, a large group of Israelites to also stay faithful to God. So then we're going to jump forward. We're going to leave Jeremiah. We're going to go to Daniel 9. So now they know God's going to come back for them and they know it's going to be in 70 years he'll come back for them. Um, this issue the Daniel repeats, Daniel then is the Daniel the prophet. He's in Babylon and he's referring to this as they're closing in on the end of their time in Babylon. He remembers this prophet Jeremiah. I, Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's desolate. God's going to do this. God always keeps his word. He's always faithful. And Daniel's remembering this prophecy through Jeremiah. He knows Jeremiah's a... A reliable prophet because he's predicted everything he's proven true so he's saying okay we need to trust that our time in Babylon's coming to a close so then Daniel adds this it's interesting and I, and this is because I want to I want you to get the shift that in 9 2 he just said 70 years and then he gives another prophecy after we leave Babylon God's going to set another time period and here it is Daniel 9 verse 24 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring everlasting righteousness. Sounds like Jesus, right? We're going to end this whole thing with sin. To seal up vision and prophecy, to fulfill the law. 
and to anoint the most holy. So in case you didn't get the messianic part, there's that last phrase there in, in Daniel 9, 24. So it's going to be 70 weeks and the Messiah is going to show up and he's going to reconcile all of us. He's going to fix sin. He's going to fulfill prophecy. Then verse 25, Daniel chapter 9, know therefore and understand. So that's a, a command to the Israelites and we should understand this too, that from the going forth of the command to restore to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, in the Hebrew that's Messiah ruler, seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times, and after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So Daniel predicts it. The, the question here is, wait, seven, seven weeks, why, why the word weeks? So in the Hebrew, and this is something we just don't get in the, in the thing, we have a week which is seven days, six days we shall work, one day we rest. But remember, Israel had a country where a week could either be a day or a year, and that comes from Levit Leviticus 25. The land shall have a Sabbath of the Lord. So just like we get a Sabbath every week, the earth itself gets a Sabbath from farming. So for six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its produce. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. And remember, that's why they got sent to Babylon in the first place. One of their sins was they didn't give the land Sabbath. So while Jerusalem's desolate, God's saying, I'm going to take my Sabbaths back. So he leaves them in Babylon for the 70 years because that was the number of Sabbaths that the land didn't get. So, that, so it all kind of fits that way. So when Daniel's talking about 70 weeks and, and, and those weeks go by and the prophecy doesn't come true, none of the Jews got upset about that. They're like, oh, these are years. So it's 62 years, seven weeks and 60, or seven years and 62 years until this Messiah is going to show up. So Daniel's predicted it. That's when it's going to happen. Israel's calendar then is something I don't understand. I can get you some of the sources on this. The 70 weeks equals then 70 um, sevens, 70 years or 70 sevens. Or if you want to look at that, that's 490 years total to complete this historic task of Messiah showing up. So in 70 weeks or 70 sevens, you get this idea. And then Daniel says, but at week 69, seven and 62, there's going to be a prince that shows up. So the work of God is going forward, no matter what. But if you look at that idea, 69 weeks equals 483 years. So if you take weeks and convert it to years, you've got a Messiah, the prince, showing up. Um, after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off for not for himself. We know when the crucifixion is going to happen. We know when he will show up as Messiah based on that. So if you look at the baptism starting Jesus' ministry, but his crucifixion sealing it and making him the prince or having him claim full authority, this is an important part at the beginning of this chapter because I'm going to suggest as we go through chapter 21, Jesus is claiming his role as high priest, high king, worship leader, praise leader, maintenance guy. He's claiming all the roles of the Levitical priesthood. This entire chapter is him taking authority. So... If you look at this 483 years for Messiah the Prince, he's claiming his authority on this day and on, these, on this period of time right here. So if there's then 62 or 69 weeks, then we still have one week left, this seven-year period where Jesus or Messiah is doing his work. And this is where, this is where you get the theory, or if, you're, if, if you are into doctrinal theological points, it's called dispensationalism. The dispensation of God's will happens over time. And so you got the 69 weeks between the establishment of Jerusalem and Messiah. And then you've got one week of, or seven years just dangling out there. That dispensationalists say that hasn't been dispensed yet. This is where you get all the end times theology that comes out of Daniel. There's going to be a seven-year you know, period, three and a half years of tribulation, three and a half years of this. We won't deal with the one week because we're not on that passage. We are on the day Jesus shows up and walks into town. So this is where this gets kind of cool. So the Jewish and, frankly, the Babylonian calendars, you both use a 360-day year. That means there's 69 weeks of a 360-day year. I didn't do the math on this, but I'm going to trust the math person used a calculator. That's 173,880 days 
from when the mandate is given to establish Jerusalem. So a hundred years after Daniel's prophecy, Artaxerxes Longomanius on March 15th, 445 BC, gave the order to rebuild Jerusalem. It happened. So I'll read that. It's recorded in Nehemiah 2, verse 1. It's also recorded in Babylonian records. So we've got verification on that. So it can't be the order to restore Jerusalem, and it can't be the order to build Jerusalem. The text that we got in Daniel is it has to be an order to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So it can't be a different city. So that means the Jewish people will take ownership of the city, restore it, and they will rebuild this city, and that means physical rebuilding of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah 2, verse 1, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, this is how we know the date, And I said to the king, verse 5, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I might rebuild it. And so it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. So it gets marked, and that date happens when that happens. Our Xerxes says you're free to rebuild it, and you can then take control of it. They are persecuted by all of the people that are in the area of Jerusalem. Like, when they rebuild Jerusalem, they have to have half of the people holding weapons and on guard duty, and half of the people doing masonry work. Like, they build it under pressure, just like Daniel predicted he would. This is so precise to the day that liberal scholars have started to believe Daniel was written after the resurrection, which is ridiculous. Like, it is absolute fantasy. So they brought the donkey and the colt, they laid their clothes on them, and, and set him on them, verse 7 of our chapter. The dating here is really clear about what they're doing. We have these first-person accounts that pinpoint the Passover, and the entire Jewish culture and calendar establishes that in this particular year, April 6, 32 AD, is when this day is that they set Jesus on the donkey. So we have that day. If you want to deny that date or challenge it, you really have to challenge the entire Jewish calendaring system. Like, they keep pretty good records. In fact, there's a stereotype that Jewish people are really good at keeping records. So this is something that God set it up and given a cultural attribute there. It's hard to deny that these records are accurate. So counting from March 15th, 445 BC to April 6th, 332 AD, guess how many days that is? It's perfect. 173,880 days. Jesus goes riding in on a donkey. Now, we're not the only people to do this math. In the first century, the Jewish community did it. Now, they had little groups, right? Just like we do with end times. You got this group that thinks this and this group that thinks that. They had little groups that, but one of those groups is like, today is the day. And the priests and the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, they all knew about that group going, today's the day. And then this guy who's been doing miracles for three and a half years heals two blind people, announces himself in the city of Jerusalem, and then he says, go get me a donkey. I'm going to sit on it. He lets them put him on the donkey. There were Jewish people that were electric about today, and they were ready for Messiah to show up. And here's this guy who can heal the blind. So they don't even need to know who Jesus is. The multitudes are coming out, and they're going to be excited about what's happening on this day. So... And those two blind men serve as two witnesses. I was blind, but now I see. So in verse 8, back in our chapter, I don't know, I just, this is stunning. This is the stuff they should have taught me back in high school. Like, why don't we learn this stuff? And the reason we don't learn it is because it, it adds a lot of validity to what's going on with Jesus and what God had planned for the universe. Verse 8, and a very great multitude. Again, they're electric. This is the moment. This is the guy. Almost everyone in that crowd thinks Jesus is going to overtake the Romans. The oppressive Roman state that conquered them a few decades ago, he thinks they're going to throw him off. He think, they think he's a military leader. So they spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is where we get little kids running around with palm branches on Easter, right? And Hosanna. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, Hosanna to the son of David calling him the king of the, the Jews. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he'd come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? In First Kings, they were celebrating a king coming into the city, and it says like the ground shook, right? So this idea that the city was moved could actually be literal. 
like people could feel the shout. If you ever been in an auditorium or a stadium and they're just going nuts in the stadium, you can feel it in your feet. So it's that kind of noise. And then people, and the, all the city was moved saying, who is this? this? Who's this guy? And the multitude said, this is important prophetically, they name him. This is Jesus. At the beginning of Matthew, Messiah was named to us, the readers. But this is the moment he's named to the nation of Israel. And the whole Old Testament is, it's the Messiah, the promised one, the person who you don't know the name of yet, but the name will be revealed. So when they say, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee, they're naming the Messiah for the first time. They've been expecting this for hundreds of years. So again, this is like shaking up a soda can and taking your finger and putting it under the tab. And when you pull that tab, you know exactly what's going to happen, right? It's, it's going to be everywhere. And that's exactly what happens. They name Jesus. It's like pulling the tab on a soda can. And the city just erupts when he comes walking up that hill on a donkey. And they're throwing their clothes on the ground. Why are they throwing their clothes on the ground? That's ridiculous. Now your clothes are dirty. You just had a donkey walk on them. Why would anyone in their right mind take their clothes and throw them on the ground? Here's why. 2 Kings 9.13. Then they hastened. Every man took his garment and put it under him on top of the stairs and blew trumpets saying, Jehu is king. It's a, it's, a, it's a Jewish thing. It's a Jewish tradition that when the king is riding up into Jerusalem, you lay down your clothes so he can walk on your clothes. It's an act of submission. It's an act of recognition. So, and it started back with Jehu, which I think is odd because you got Jehu as the name of the first king they did this for, but it becomes a Jewish tradition. In the first century, this is a way of honoring that person. And then the cutting down of the branches and the trees and spreading them on the road, that seems like an odd tradition too. Um, that actually comes not out of the Old Testament, but out of 1 Maccabees 13.51. So here's what it says in 1 Maccabees. The Jews entered the citadel with shouts of jubilation, waving palm branches, the musics of harps, cymbals, and lyres. So there's singing going on with this, and singing of the hymns and the canticles because a great enemy of Israel had been destroyed. You lay down your clothes to honor and submit to the king. You bring out the palm branches to celebrate that the enemy just got his butt kicked. So when you put those two things together, what the Jewish people are saying here is we've found our Messiah. And there's only one group of people that really take issue with this. Well, actually, two, the Romans and the chief elders of the temple. This is a problem for them. This is on the Passover feast. It's the 10th day of the month. While all these people are shouting and yelling, what they were doing in the morning is they're going through their flock and they were picking out a pure and spotless lamb that they'd have move into their house and live with them for a few days. This is that day where you pick out your sacrifice that you're going to have. Well, all the city of Jerusalem just picked out their sacrifice and they named him. This is Jesus of Nazareth. In verse 9, they say, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The weird thing here with Hosanna, we're not using a Greek word. Like normally in New Testament, it's Greek. But in here, they use the Hebrew word Hosanna. They don't use the Greek word for it. It means to save, to deliver, to liberate, to open something up or to free something. Hosanna. So when they're singing Hosanna to the Son of David, they're calling him their Savior. You've come to free us. You've come to liberate us. And they're thinking from the Romans. Jesus is thinking from sin and death. But the wording is perfect. Everything's perfect in this chapter. Exodus 14.30, thus, thus the Lord Hosanna to Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and the Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. It's the same word. So when we see, it often gets translated saved. The Lord saved Israel that day, but in the Hebrew, it's the Lord Hosanna Israel that day. Then in Deuteronomy 20, verse 4, he saved them, he Hosanna them from Egypt, but the Lord your God, he is the one that goes for you to fight against your enemies to Hosanna you. He protects them as a nation as they go through. You'll fail in all the kings that you have, Deuteronomy 28, 29, and no king, no man is ever going to Hosanna you. So when they start singing Hosanna in the highest, <laughs> they're calling Jesus God. Because again, Deuteronomy 28, verse 29, no man shall ever Hosanna you. Only God is the Hosanna of Israel. So when they start singing Hosanna around Jesus, 
They know exactly what they're singing. They're calling him the Messiah. He's God's voice. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God is bringing salvation through Jesus Christ. And the, the Lord is working. So they're, they're, they're saying Hosanna to Jesus, save salvation to Jesus, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, salvation in the highest. It's amazing. Israel is told to not worry, Deuteronomy 33, 29. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, O people saved by the Lord. So they're using a Hebrew word for salvation that really throughout the Old Testament only ever belonged to God or God's servants. So at the very least, they're calling Jesus God's servant. But when they call him son of David, they're calling him the king. He has taken his kingdom and moved it into Jerusalem. Uh, so he is empowered by God. He's guarded like David, like David was. But the multitudes knew exactly what they were saying. And they were saying it loudly, so the whole city shook. There's not one person in Jerusalem who didn't know what it was. And the ones that weren't, didn't know who he was asked, who is this? So when God's people get excited about things, this is why I'm excited about the baptism. When we sing songs, when we make a noise, when we're joyful, people are like, what's going on over there? It's the natural human reaction to people having fun. Hey, what's going on? So this is why in the 1920s they set up a tent and started playing music before they gave a teaching of the word. It's called a big tent kind of thing. It's why you'd have traveling evangelists. Hey, what's the hubbub? What's going on? Well, Billy Graham's coming to town. Or the Harvest Festival. We're going to fill up a dome and do that. When God's people make noise, the natural reaction of people who don't know say, who is this? What's going on? It draws that positive attention. And all you got to do is say, come with me. Come and see what God's people are doing. So it's not that all attention is good, but when you're singing, smiling, it, it gets under people's skins that aren't included in that. Like, why am I not part of the joke? You know, so this kind of attention is outstanding. What's going on? Why are you people so excited? It's all these people that knew that today was Messiah Day and there's a guy riding in on a donkey. And it's not just any guy. It's a guy for three and a half years who's been healing everybody who came to him. We know he's ordained by God. We know he's blessed by God. We're going to get behind him. The sad part about this is like the people in a few days are going to absolutely turn on Jesus because he doesn't turn out to be a military leader like they thought. And then they're going to just be like, kill this guy. He faked us out. We thought he was Messiah and he fooled all of us. So kill him, crucify him, get rid of this guy. He messed up the day. Like, this was a big deal to go playing Messiah on the day the Messiah was supposed to show up. So you can see why they get angry. Here's the other thing. Luke 19, when he tells this story, he talks about how Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because they, don't, they didn't know that it was the day. You guys were told when I would show up, and you didn't know the day. And he rebukes them for it. So this is part of why this is an important kind of thing. So while everybody's shouting and yelling, I'm thinking, okay, who are the other things in town? Like, it doesn't say how the city was moved. It just, there's some that were worshiping Jesus with the palm branches and the praise, but there's others that just ignored him, like probably the Romans. Like, why would they care about some guy riding on a donkey? Oh, it's another Jewish thing. Wise men um, troubled the city exactly 33 years ago, and it uses sim very similar phrasing. When the wise men showed up to Jerusalem, it troubled the entire city, not just Herod, right? In chapter, that's Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. So now he's coming back to Jerusalem. Once again, he's troubled the city and everybody's paying attention. Another group, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're likely, in verse 15, it says they're indignant. They're absolutely outraged that Jesus would have the gall to pretend he's a Messiah on this particular day. This was the Messiah's day and Jesus is stealing it is how they would have seen. They've already determined he's not of God. So this is a, how dare he think, but all the city is moved. They're all, something's happening with everybody. As always, Jesus becomes a great divider. He divides people that believe in him and people that don't. So this is, what they don't know is this is God himself who made himself their salvation. He's the chief cornerstone and this day is marvelous. They should just be celebrating. This is it. Psalm 118.24, this is the day with what the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And this is Jesus. He's the prophet from the Nazareth, the Galilee. The people that are kind of explaining who it is, it's interesting that they just call him a prophet. 
right? That's one of the critiques of the Bible. If you talk to an atheist, well, he's just a prophet. He's, or if you talk to a Muslim, Jesus is just a prophet. So it's not quite like they get it right. There's, and again, in a few days, they're going to want to crucify this guy. These aren't followers of Jesus. These are people pretty excited that there's a big event going on. And they're jumping on board with that big event. That page won't do. Okay, we're just not going to teach that stuff. Therefore, my people shall know my name. So this is the other piece of it. Isaiah 52, 6, that's another prophetic reference. It says that on this day, when, when the Messiah comes, the people shall know my name. And they shall know in that day, the day, that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. Isaiah 52, verse 6. Now, Messianic stuff, Isaiah 52, 53, like, we love that, those chapters, right? They absolutely point to Messiah. Um, but this is another, just a, the point that they shout out and Matthew points out that they named Jesus, this is important because that's another, like check off another prophecy that gets fulfilled, which is almost every sentence in this chapter. So Jesus knows that they're going to turn on him. Luke points out that as he's riding up into the city, he's actually crying. So the, he, he's weeping over Jerusalem as he rides up into the city as they're celebrating and shouting his praises because he knows judgment is coming. Nazareth of Galilee. Um, again, in the past when we've seen Jesus of Nazareth, it's almost been derogatory. Um, it's such a little town, but it's such a little town they have to note the region. It's not just Nazareth, it's Nazareth of Galilee. It's like this small town up north. But we don't see a lot of derision in this reference to it. Like God has taken the things that are humble and he's elevated them up. We're going to get into a series of events. We're, we're going to, before we get into verse 12, we'll get into a series of events. Each one, and this is my read on it, I think what Jesus is doing, this, the rest of this chapter looks a little like just random at, at, a, at, a, at a cursory reading of it. And all of it's good, and there's points in each one you can draw out. You can do whole sermons on each of these things. But for me, I'm trying to look for, like, why did Matthew put these things in order? And they look so random. Turning over uh, tables in the temple, withering a fig tree. Like, it just seems so, like, a collection. And one explanation, which is valid, is this is just what happened. It, so it's historical. Another explanation of, of, of Matthew is that throughout Matthew, he's had to cut and paste the things that he wants to... I mean, there's three and a half years that he's reducing down to 20 one chapter so far, right? So he's picking what he's going to say and how he's going to say it. And there's likely a lot more things that happened, but he chooses these things. So the Levites were redeemed of the Lord back in Numbers 3.49. They represent the firstborn of the nation. So after Passover, which is this is Passover holiday, God said, instead of all of you giving, because the firstborn were killed in Egypt, right? So Jesus says to the nation of Israel, instead of you each giving me your firstborn, because I claim those firstborn, they're mine. I'm your God. I'm a God Almighty. I get your first kid. Instead of doing that with every family in Israel, he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to take the, the tribe of the Levites. I'm not going to give them land. I claim all the Levites to, to be my servants. And that's how we're going to do it. So the Levites, to a person actually represent the firstborn sons of all of Israel. That's why they settled in all the different tribes. It's that they have given their life as a propitiation for the debt that's owed by every family in Israel. Sounds similar to Jesus? They're a stand-in. So if you remove the Levites, then God's claim on those firstborn sons being his goes back into place. Unless there's another sacrifice another redemption, another replacement for those firstborn sons to be an intermediary between Israel and God. Okay, so all of this is, people are like the Old Testament and New Testament are totally different. No, they're not. It's the same set of rules. God established it and it's true. But we're going to remove the Levites from the priesthood. In order to do that, there has to be another substitute for our sins that we owe a debt. There has to be somebody else the blood is on the doorpost, that gets God to overlook the house, right? So there needs to be a shedding of blood. Uh, they, so they bring these little sheep into their home for a few days, fall in love with Fluffy, and then they'd sacrifice Fluffy. And that was the sacrifice for their sins as a family, a pure and spotless lamb. So as the people have, have identified their pure and spotless lamb, 
I think this is what Matthew's doing in this chapter. He is removing the priesthood step by step. And, he, and, and it brings a consistency to all of these stories. So I'm going to go through a ton of verses here. Get your pencils ready. Um, and I'm going to walk through because then the question we got to ask is, what Numbers 3 verse 7, they sh- the Levites shall attend to his needs and the needs of the whole congregation before the tabernacle meeting to do the work of the tabernacle. Tabernacle becomes the temple. If we're not going to use the temple anymore, the Levites don't need to take care of that building because we're going to be a church now. We're not going to be a temple then the question is, what are the things that the priests were commanded to do in the Old Testament? What are the duties of the priesthood? This is phenomenal. (laughs) Their job, and I'm going to go through even the petty ones. One of their jobs was to attend to the furnishings of the temple. They were caretakers. They were the maintenance people. So if there was a chair that needed fixing, the Levites fixed it. If there was a if there was a paint, like something got, some of the paint got chipped and it needed to be repainted, they did it. Numbers 3, 8. The, Levitic, the Levites were the caretakers of the temple. If there were tables in the temple area that shouldn't be in the temple area, it was the Levites' job to get those tables out of there, right? And we're going to see that happen in verse 12. They were responsible for the entire nation of Israel to keep all the weights and measures accurate, Leviticus 19.35. We're going to see Jesus take care of that in verse 12. They were responsible for coordinating the offering of the sacrifices and ushering people in to the temple area and making them welcome. They were supposed to receive people, even Gentiles, and just bring them in the door and make them comfortable, Leviticus chapter 4. In verse 12, we're going to see Jesus clear out the courtyard and make room for people to come into the temple. They were supposed to, the priests, and again, in each one of these, my point is, they fail in every one of these areas. So at the same time we see Jesus take the headship of the priesthood, Matthew's showing us how the priesthood that was in existence had utterly failed to do their job. In every regard, they failed to do their job. Another job they had was to coordinate prayer and intercession of the Lord. Leviticus 9, Numbers 6, Exodus 28. In verse 13, Jesus takes over the prayer ministry. They were to serve as healers and they were supposed to treat the sick. Leviticus 13, Jesus heals, verse 14, and takes over the healing ministry. They were supposed to stand before God and bless his name. They were the worship people. Um, They were supposed to be the ones speaking out blessings. Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'll say this again. I'm going too fast. Deuteronomy 10, verse 8. Um, So the blessing of the name, verse 15. If you skim down there, Jesus takes that over. They were supposed to coordinate and approve praise and worship. There was a whole group of Levites. Their job was to make music. They were the worship leaders. 1 Chronicles 23, verse 5, Jesus is going to take over worship in verse 16. They were supposed to, and this is the kicker. We're not going to get to this today. They were supposed to teach the law. One of the primary jobs of the Levitical priesthood was to teach the people the law accurately and well. So if they don't even know the law and they haven't even read it, verse 23, how are they supposed to teach it? So Leviticus 10, verse 11, they're supposed to be teachers of the law. They're supposed to be gatekeepers, Gatekeepers through in the Jewish world were the judges and people that discerned the application of the law. They were supposed to help people with sticky situations and come up with a wise, godly solution to those situations. 1 Chronicles 23, verse 4. Verse 27, Jesus takes over as head gatekeeper. They were supposed to be scribes. I, I saved this one for last. They were supposed to be scribes and copy out God's word per hand. So when you say you haven't even read the Bible, you've never read it, they weren't fulfilling their duty as scribes, right? Verse 42, throughout this chapter, Jesus is going to actually reveal the failure of the priesthood, and he's going to take over and do the duties that they should have been doing in the first place. They should have kept that temple open. So we'll dig into this, um, but this is surgical. I think this chapter is not random at all. It's precise, and Matthew's... Matthew is showing that he's not just the king Messiah, he's also the high priest. And he's methodically going through and taking over the priesthood. Here's the weird things. The Pharisees and scribes help him do that. Like, I don't even think they realize what they're doing when they come up to him. They're manifesting their own failure when they go in. They should have just stayed back in their little rooms and had some grapes, like, and hung out. But they, they lose their own priesthood. And when they, the enemy just can't stop themselves. So verse 12, we'll start going through these. Then Jesus went into the temple of God. Whose temple is it? Is it the Pharisee's temple? Nope. It's God's temple. And drove out all those who were bought and sold in the temple. 
<laughs> All those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. You've failed as a priesthood to do your job. Mark 11, by the way, we know this is Monday, so he didn't come riding up on the pony and doing that. Like, this is a, a part. Jesus is being intentional here. He's not in a rage. And I think the world loves to paint this as Jesus in a rage situation. He's not in a rage at all. He's doing what a priest should have done. Should, the priest should be like, get out of here. This isn't your place of business. This is the court of the Gentiles. This is an important spot. So he doesn't just get the sellers, by the way. That's the other thing. He's not just going after the money changers. Look carefully. He drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. Anybody that came to the temple and they didn't bring their own sacrifice and they're just going to go pay the dove people for a dove, he kicked them out too. Sacrifice should cost you something. Like David didn't just take the bread from the temple. He's like, no, I'll pay for that land or I'll pay for that. When we give something to God, we're supposed to give it. So when, you, when people try to make that easy or convenient, they're taking something away from the process and what's important. So Jesus kicked out the people who bought in addition to the people who sold. Like, pay attention to what he's doing here. So it's the point of it is the key. The priests allowed this because they made money off of it. It's like Disneyland. Like, the Coke isn't just more expensive if you buy a soda at Disneyland. Disneyland's just making more money off the same soda right? And that's, it's well known to everyone that the priests are being overly picky on the sacrifices. So it's just easier to buy your lamb when you get to the temple. You don't have to transport the lamb. You don't have to walk the lamb. You don't have to fall in love with the lamb because they're sweet little cuddly things sometimes. It's just, let's just, the priests are just going to make a stink about it. They're just going to say this isn't an approved sacrifice so that we have to buy their stupid lambs. So some stubborn people would say no, I'll bring my own lamb. And Jesus didn't kick those people out of the temple. It, he kicked out the people that, that were part of this scam. Malachi 3.3, one of the last things that was said to the Jews before a 400-year period of silence about Messiah, he will sit as refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. They knew they weren't supposed to do this. So Messiah's going to come. He's going to clean up the temple. Um, and he does so. And, and, and in this, some of the people are like, oh, shoot, I didn't bring a lamb. Now I have nothing to give because Jesus just kicked those people out of here. So I'll wait till tomorrow. I'll come back tomorrow and give my sacrifice. But some of the people are like, well, praise the Lord. The lines just got a lot shorter. You know, I already got my, I did my job. My lambs are right here. My doves are right with me. I'm good to go. So when Jesus overturns the tables, he takes over the job of maintenance guy. He's the, now the high maintenance guy of the temple. He's doing the job the priest should have done. People know it's a den of thieves. Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah gives a strong rebuke to the prophecy in the temple. Jeremiah 7, 8, Behold, you trust in lying words that can't profit. You will steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods who you don't know, and then come and stand before me in this house, the temple, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered to do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen fit, says the Lord. It was prophesied that they would do this. And Jesus is, this is a symbolic act. And when he references a den of thieves, he's referencing that Jeremiah 7. The entire priesthood misses a chance to support their king. They should have just said, hey, thanks for cleaning it out. That, that was a problem. We knew it was a problem. We just needed somebody with the guts to do it. But instead of thanking Jesus, he just cleans house. Part of why he cleans house here is because he also references a house of prayer. This should be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a market. So what the temple was intended for matters. And Jesus, in clearing it out to make it a place for the Gentile, that, so there's the Holy of Holies, there's the place where the priests operate, there's the inner courtyard, and then there's the outer courtyard. The outer courtyard is the biggest area because it holds the biggest amount of people. And the outer courtyard was supposed to be where, like, where the university was. It's where all the people came to learn God's word. It's where all the people came for prayer. It was also called, the Jews called it the courtyard of the Gentiles because it's as far as a Gentile could get 
in the proximity to God's um, ark. So this courtyard of the Gentiles was the place where everybody could come and be in the presence of God and just pray and praise the Lord. There'd be song. There'd be people in the corner praying together. There'd be people, there'd be rabbis teaching the word over in that corner. All of those activities, what's it like when you got a bunch of goats or a bunch of sheep and a bunch of doves and, and a, you got a, a meat market right in the middle of where that's supposed to happen? It'd be like me trying to teach right now and some person over there is shouting out, I got lambs for 20 bucks, lambs for 20 bucks, and you're trying to teach the word. And Jesus is like, you're supposed to be, this is supposed to be for prayer out here. What are you doing with this stuff? So in clearing it out, and the reference in, of house of prayer um, comes from Isaiah 56, uh, verse 6. It makes me want to go back and just reread all of Isaiah. The sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and love the name of the Lord to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. The people that honor me, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer, the temple. And their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted unto my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The courtyard of the Gentiles is for everybody. It's not to do business so you can make a buck. It's not the purpose here. So the court of the Gentiles was for all these different things. And now they had to pray with the smell and the noise of commerce and animals and haggling merchants and people yelling about the price. And you can bet that was a distraction. Acts chapter 8, <laughs> there's this assumption as the eunuch leaves the temple area in Acts chapter 8, he, he left more confused than when he walked in. Somebody should have been there to teach that eunuch about Jesus. Somebody should have been there to open up the word of God. But God has to bring Philip to him on the road saying, hey, what you reading there? I'm reading these scrolls and I, did, I went to the temple. I went to God's house and I still can't make sense of these. That's wrong, and it's not appropriate. That Gentile should have been able to go in and learn everything they wanted to learn about the Lord. So the scam is now bumped out. Prayer now becomes possible. God clears some space. Jesus just clears them out. And in doing this, he removes stumbling blocks. He makes the way of the Lord clear, also prophetic. The priests were supposed to protect the space. God should be at the middle of that space, and he does what? he should have done. Isaiah 62.10, prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up a highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for the people. He's not just overturning tables. He's clearing the way so people can come into that courtyard and meet God. Jesus then becomes the protector or the shepherd that the Levites should have always been. They should have been guarding over this. And then you get 14, just this random sentence right in the middle. Then the blind man and the lame man came to him in the temple and he healed them. Where did this happen? In the courtyard of the Gentiles. After Jesus clears it out, now people like the lame and the blind, those are the cursed people that the Pharisees had no room for. And now they're welcomed into the temple. Come on in. And he heals them. <laughs> this is what should be happening out in the courtyard. The Levites were given chapters of medical instructions on how to care for people medically. They were supposed to be the doctors of the society that gave free health care to anybody that would walk in. Now their health care was not very high tech, but it was loving and it, and, it was, and it was thoughtful. And it's actually scientific, like it actually works. I remember when I first came to a church, nobody comes to church perfect their first time. Nobody does. It was such a mess. I was so dark in my heart when I first walked into a church. All I knew is that might be a place where there's some light. But what if I went there and everybody just had problems? What are you doing? What are you doing here? Aren't you Sean Dickers? Aren't you that punk kid? What are you doing in a church? Can you imagine that reception? You know, and these blind and these lame apparently didn't feel access to the courtyard of the Gentiles before Jesus did what he did. But now they can walk in. Well, I was lame. I had a lame heart when I first came to church. Right? And the reception we get when we walk in the door, oh, I don't know if I should be, I'm, I'm not clean enough for a church. Baloney. None of us are clean enough for a church. That's what grace is. Come on in. Hang out with us broken people. We're just trying to follow the Lord. We gave up on trying to be perfect a long time ago. Come on in. Well, I just, I, I shouldn't be here. I don't belong in this church. No. Our job is to welcome and do that. Even when somebody's not mature. And I'm so glad that my first encounter with the church I encountered people that loved me and wanted me to be there, even when I didn't feel like I should be. 
right? And, I, and just that, that idea. That I was just some punk kid walking in by myself, you know? Where's your family? Not, no, nobody said that to me. They're like, oh, Dickers. Yeah, okay, welcome. You need to be here. <laughs> like, they didn't deny sin. They didn't wash sin off or pretend like I didn't have a bunch of sin. They're just like, yeah, it's about time. Come on in, sit down, come sit with my family, come hang out with us. What are you doing this weekend? You know, come on in. And that idea of being honest about sin, calling it what it is, but not getting caught up on it, you know, Jesus then starts to heal people, which is what should happen in the temple. Jesus becomes the high healer. He becomes the head doctor of the temple. And he starts actually doing what the, what the, what the priests and the Pharisees were not doing. And then you get to 15. But when the chief priests and scribes, this is the part that kills me, they saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They saw the wonderful things that he did, but they didn't see what he was doing. And they didn't join in the praise. They didn't celebrate. By not praising with the kids, they're failing in their duties to be the worship leaders in the temple. This was their responsibility was to organize and coordinate and lead praise. I don't know if you've heard kids singing. It's charming. They're not good at it, but that's part of what's beautiful about it. And God gives kids these voices that haven't fully fixed into their, their adult voices yet, and it sounds beautiful in its unorganized kind of way. Imagine that, but this is, the kids weren't, it doesn't say they were singing. There is a Greek word for singing. It says they were crying out in the temple. They're just shouting. Right? They heard everybody on the street, the whole city's upset, and, and then the kids just start screaming it all day. And they're probably running around with palm branches, and they're making a bunch of noise. But they're running around making a bunch of noise like, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David! Salvation to the Son of David! And they're just running around doing this. Now, in most churches, we tell kids to shut up. We're trying to study the Word right now. Boy, not when they're, not when they're praising God. like Not when that's what's coming out of their mouth, right? And kids do that. They... they they don't have a problem with worship. They get it, especially really young kids. So without any coordination or organization, they're just giving this honest praise for God and God's coming into the temple in the form of Jesus Christ. Jesus should be getting glorified when he shows up in his own temple. And he is getting glorified. It's by unorganized kids, not by the priests who should have been singing those praises. This alone should out, this should outrage Jesus. Jesus should be furious that he showed up in his own temple and the priests there didn't bother to worship him or praise him. You know, but this, this is what outrages the Pharisees. And the, they're like, these kids are calling you Messiah. They're calling you Savior. They're calling you King. Jesus, you should stop these children. Shut them up. They're indignant is the word that gets used. They were indignant, and they said to you, do you hear what these kids are saying? And that's not a friendly question, right? They're not coming to him as teacher like, do you even hear what these kids are saying about you? They're calling you the Messiah. Jesus this time doesn't run from it at all. He doesn't, he doesn't duck the title. Jesus is... <laughs> the word indignant there in the Greek is agonokteo. Uh, in the King James, this should, if you have a King James, it says sore displeased. They're so angry, it hurts. They're just red-faced, like where their, their veins are popping out of their forehead. This is an abomination happening in front of them. So in verse 10, when it says the whole city was moved, we get to see how they were moved. Um, Jesus' wonderful acts are a threat to their priesthood. In fact, he's already taken over a number of priestly jobs. Maybe they actually recognize what he's doing here. You know, he's healing, he's, but now he's directing praise. He's becoming the head worship leader. Um, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees is horrible. They're not upset about systematic theft and false weights in the temple and robbing people. To them, that's okay. But healing and children singing praises and the proper use of the courtyard of the Gentiles, that's bad. Think of how flipped they are. Like they're calling evil good and good evil. They just got it all backwards. And, and man, it amazes me how this happens. Jesus shows them exactly what they are to everybody. Like people are getting healed. He's teaching. He's, he's clearing out these people that shouldn't be there. Gentiles start walking in and, oh, the court, we got a new person in charge here. Look at this. I can walk in. It's not noisy. Those people just got healed. They're shouting praises. The children are running around shouting praises. Like, what is this? 
this wild move of the Holy Spirit. And the Pharisees are like, what is this? And they can't, they just got it all wrong. Jesus um, doesn't break the law here. Um, the space is exactly meant for what we see here. This is the, what the temple should have been. It's beautiful. Kids running around singing, people getting healed. All of it's happening there. Verse 16, and Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? He's referencing Psalm 8, which also has the, we all know how great, how excellent is your name in all the earth, right? It's an utter praise song for the Lord. So he's referencing that when he says this verse out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. So in answer to verse 16, like, do you hear what they're saying? His answer is, yeah, and it's perfect praise. I hear what's going on. It's perfect. Ah, oh, what an answer. Who's in charge of worship now? Who just took over the word? He's actually judged and deemed the child's worship as appropriate and good. He's the worship leader. So he, he shows that they are utter failures at this. One of their key jobs to sing praises to the Lord. And he is deeming these kids now in charge of that. <laughs> like these kids are going to do the job because you guys, you guys can't. So those songs are heard. They're heard by God. And it fulfills another prophecy. So kids get praise. It's super easy. I also think Jesus just threw in here that, that he has another chance to say, have you never read? Um, this is building. He, he said, you should read earlier in Matthew. And I, I didn't bother to look up the verses. And then he says, well, clearly you didn't read. And now he says, you have never read. So he progressively points out they're failing to actually read and study the Bible. And in this, he's building towards another role, which they should have. They're trying to test Jesus, but he's actually testing them. And he's coming into his temple to take charge of it. And I just love this. The other thing is this happens over Passover week. So he's coming back day after day. And so those money changers, they probably were set up within a day. But Jesus came in, took the authority, and at some point he's going to yell at that fig tree and, and wither it and say, you guys don't have any fruit. I'm done with you. And that's actually what's coming up next. I'm going to do one more sentence. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. In this process of, of taking the role of the high priest and coming into the temple and taking that role and realizing the utter corruption in that system, then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. God himself did not lodge in his own temple. And he didn't take up residence there. So what the purpose here wasn't just to clear out the money changers forever. Like he's not coming back day after day to do that. But he came in and he proved that the Pharisees hadn't done their job. So he's not a Levite. He's, he's of the tribe of Judah. But he's going to take over this. He's going to exchange this priesthood for a holy priesthood called the church. Us. He's going to say, these people can do it better than these Levites can. They've been trained since birth. I've been trained since I accepted Jesus. And when we, when we pull out the guitars and we're singing praise to the Lord, we're doing what these Pharisees couldn't seem to figure out how to do. And we don't have to be perfect at it. Like, kids weren't perfect. You know, we just shout it out. And it doesn't have to be good, but it's pray, honest, true praise to the Lord. Same with prayer. Same with fixing the chairs and keeping the... Same with being ushers and deciding, making the way clear so people can get in here. Somebody who's, who's hosp hospitable and they know how to make people feel welcome. Somebody that know how to give solid, truthful me medical advice and help people with their health, right? Money, people that figure out the weights for money changers, people that understand finances and can help other people in the body. These are all ministries in the church that we help each other live life and do life. It's what the, these priests should have been doing. And Jesus is taking that authority and he's going to then hand it to the disciples. And that's what we'll see as we go into the rest of the chapter. He's going to hand that prayer right over to the disciples. Anything you pray for, it's going to happen. So as you're acting in that role, there's a blessing in that. So, and we'll get into that too because people get tripped up on the theology of that. You know, if I ask for a new Corvette, I'm going to get it. No, that's no, that's not how that works. Um, there's a spiritual element here that we'll get into next week. Um, but then he left. He doesn't stay to fight it. It's like God has a plan. These were all things he was doing that were um, necessary acts of Jesus to fulfill the law and to formally take away these authority aspects from the church. It's just one way to read the chapter. For me, it makes a lot of sense. 
um, he has now taken over many, much of the roles of the priesthood in the, in the temple. And for me, that just makes sense of these really disparate sentences, like, oh, we're, we're checking off the list. So um, Bethany, just so we know in verse 17, that's a suburb of Jerusalem. Uh, you have to go down into a valley that has, it's, the, it's where all the Jews bury themselves along the wall of the, the city. And, and so you go down through a graveyard and you go back up another hill that's called the Mount of Olives. When you're on top of the Mount of Olives, you get that beautiful view of Jerusalem that we all see, you know, when you search Jerusalem and it shows you the beautiful city. It's always from the Mount of Olives because you can see the Temple Mount and it's just gorgeous. So Bethany's right over the Mount of Olives. So you go down through a graveyard, up through the Garden of Gethsemane, and then Bethany's right on the other side of that hill. So he's a 20-minute walk. He's got a 20-minute commute to go into work every day at the, at the office called the Temple. Um, you know, he, so the other thing with the Bethany is it's generally the richer you were, the closer you stayed in Passover when everybody's migrating back to Jerusalem, the rich people got the spots close to the temple. Middle class and poor people, they had to stay outside of Jerusalem and then come into the temple every day. Like imagine going to the Ren Fest and you have to park in that parking lot and hike in every single time. And you think, oh, it'd be really nice to just stay at the Ren Fest. But, you know, he gets a decent Airbnb hangs out with Mary and Martha. He's got friends. He's got a free place to stay. And it happens to be in Bethany because Jesus knows people, you know. Um, and he gets that view. He gets to walk in every day and do it. And that's when we come back next week. It's that hike into the city where he goes by the fig tree. Because when you start going up the Mount of Olives, it's called the Mount of Olives for a reason. There's orchards. And there still are olive trees all over that hill. Uh, and apparently there was a fig tree in the middle at that point in time. Um, any comments on it? So... Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for the work you had to do here. There's some things you needed to take care of before your crucifixion. Um, and Lord, in, in claiming each of these pieces, um, may our hearts be open, Lord. May we learn from the fact that all of these duties uh, that the priests had are, are things you've called us to do too. Um, we should be doing these things. And Lord, may you return at your second coming and may you just say well done good and faithful servant you did one or more of those things faithfully because I called you to do them um, so Lord help us to be good servants and help us to be children of praise help us to be um, coming to you for our healing Lord and, and for our instruction um, help us to be reading your word help us never to be accused of not being in your word um, Lord help us to clear the way for people and be welcomers and hospitable. Help us to um, open our hearts to friends and family and just invite them and welcome them. Um, and Lord, help us to be singing your praises as our king and our high priest, that we need no other intercessor before God. You're our intercessor before God. We thank you for that. Lord, help us to welcome people that aren't in the kingdom, um, that the doors are open and that, that if they want to learn more about a living God, that this is a place they can learn and, and to do it in peace. Um, thank you for your word. May it move in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.